continuing in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 16, that's what we are going to be looking at today. So if you would open up in your Bibles. Also, if there's anybody here who needs a Bible, raise your hand. One of the ushers will come around and give you one. Now, tonight I'd like to start with the end in mind. So, but first off, I want to tell you, okay, there's 10 verses. That's it. So, 7.15, I think we're out of here. <laughs> now, you would think that, right, with only 10 verses. And honestly, before looking at the passage and reading through the passage and praying about it, I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to speak for? <laughs> oh, just over 10 verses. I'm telling you right now, God gave me 16 pages. So, <laughs> we have got something here. However, starting with the last verse, verse 10, and they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. There were consequences to the Israelis' actions. And we're going to discuss this further. However, in today's society, it seems like there are many who think contrary to this statement, that there aren't consequences to our actions. You get the politician who gets involved or caught in some affair, an election fraud or some kind of backdoor deal, and you might see the tears and maybe even get an, I'm sorry. But then they go ahead and state that they're going to go right back on serving their district as they were elected to do. No, you're going to step down. You're going to face the consequences because that's the right thing to do. But we don't see that, do we, right? I mean, take a look at the FTX founder, Bankman Freed, lost billions of dollars. And the latest headline, he's complaining about his bail restrictions, saying that they go too far. Okay, here's a quote. Lawyers from Sam Bankman Friedman on Saturday urged a U.S. judge not to ban the indicted uh, FTX cryptocurrency executive from communicating with former colleagues as part of his bail, saying prosecutors sandbagged the process to put their client in the worst possible lights. Hey, Sam, you fraudulently and unethically went ahead and squandered billions of dollars of other people's money and the consequences of you being not able to talk to your colleagues is too great? Really? Give me a break. So we see this all throughout the Bible, though, right? Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden, right? Here we go. We've got Noah and his family, the only ones saved. Pharaoh makes Egypt suffer the plagues and the consequences of not letting people go. But when it comes to our own lives, we want mercy and grace. And don't expect or want the consequences. Why? You know what? I believe that as a nation, we've gotten further and further away from God. And as we've kicked him out of our schools, out of our universities, out of our courthouses, we don't see his word. We're not in his word so that we see time and time again that there are consequences for our actions. We're going to take a look today at casting lots in our passage. We're also going to see the assistance of the Holy Spirit and his guidance. A, 
that we don't need to cast lots anymore, and B, by listening to him, the Holy Spirit, it can help us to avoid some of the consequences in our own lives. We're also going to take a look at two brothers of the tribe that is mentioned in this passage, the two brothers, uh, the sons of Joseph. Lastly, we're going to discuss that it, why it was necessary to wipe out an entire nations of people from the earth. And that begs the question, do we have a big cotton-headed ninny-muggins meanie god that we worship? <laughs> or is there a bigger and better understanding for his actions? Tonight, the title of our message is Casting Lots, The Inheritance and Consequences. Would you pray with me? Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much just for the opportunity to gather together, to commune together, to fellowship, and to delve into your word. And Lord, I pray that as we walk away from here tonight, that we get to know you just a little bit deeper, a little bit closer, that we have an improved relationship with you. Because Lord, that's what we need in our lives. Otherwise, if we continue to seek our own ways, our own sin, Lord, we're just going to fall apart. We're going to fall away from you and what you would have, the better things in our lives. So God, I pray that today, Lord, as we look at your word, that you would etch it upon our hearts. But God, if there's anything of man, I pray that it fall upon deaf ears. Know how much we love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. So beginning Joshua 16, verse 1. The lot fell to the children of Joseph. So last week, Gio touched on casting lots in his message. However, I'd like to go ahead and take that, expand on it just a little bit, and talk a little bit more about casting lots. Now, he mentioned that they used either rocks or sticks, uh, but just as our modern-day gambling takes on many forms, so did the ancient practice of casting lots. Proverbs 16.33 states, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, primarily in the Old Testament, there was 70 times that they cast lots. And in the New Testament, there was only seven. So, they would go ahead and cast lots in order to make decisions. And Proverbs 16.33 is an important understanding because the ancient Jews and Christians believed that God would determine things by casting lots. This random form of determining the outcome is called cleromancy. And it comes from the Greek word kleros, meaning lot or inheritance. And that's where we get our word clerk, clergy, and cleric from kleros. Now, probably because in ancient times, those positions were originally chosen by lot or were inherited. Perhaps one of the most famous casting of lots in the Bible is the casting of lots by the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus. At his crucifixion, or at a crucifixion, uh, the soldiers were allowed to take from the crucified anything that they thought of value, and Jesus' robe was particularly attractive to them. So they didn't want to divide it into four equal parts. We see this in John 19, verses 23 and 24. Let's read those. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from top in one piece. 
They said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothings they cast lots. Now that last portion, which is in quotation, that's actually from Psalm 22:18, and it was written at around 1000 BC, a millennium before Jesus, our Messiah, was even born. Now, we know from this passage that here it was, the Romans in the first century would go ahead and cast lots in order to make decisions. But also from the book of Jonah, we learn that the sailors there, they cast lots, and that was around the 8th century BC. So if you remember the story, right, Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh. However, he didn't. He went the opposite direction. Hating the Ninevites, he boards the ship and goes the other way. But let me ask you this. Can anyone run from God? No. So a huge storm comes up, and the whole crew is terrified, and they want to know who's responsible for them possibly sinking and the ship going down. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they ask him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What country? What people are you? And he answers, and he says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrifies them, and they said, ask him, what have you done? Now, they already knew because early in the scripture, he had told them that he was running away from the Lord. However, as the sea became more turbulent, they asked him, what shall we do to make the sea calm down for us? He says, pick me up, throw me overboard, and it will become calm. I know this is my fault, that a great storm has come upon you. And we see this in Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. Now, we know the rest of the story as well. God creates a giant fish in order to swallow up Jonah. Is it a fish or a whale? <laughs> a giant fish <laughs> swallows him, and he's in the belly for three days and three nights. Hmm, three days and three nights. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Yes. So we see that foreshadowing, that symbolism there of what will happen with Christ when he dies, right? However, in the Old Testament, the lots were cast to make these very important decisions. The distribution of priestly offices in the temple was divided by casting lots. We see this in 1 Chronicle 24. And the division of land, which brings us back to Joshua, as he continues to cast lots in order to distribute the land to the Israelites. Now, sometimes the casting of lot was also to solve a problem, rather than just an important decision. In Nehemiah 10.34, lots were cast in order to determine which tribe should bring wood for the altar. In Leviticus 16.8, lots were cast to decide which of the two goats would be a scapegoat. Now, that begs the question, what were lots in those times? Now, we know the Romans that they had dice, and that was a way of determining an outcome. But there were other means or other lots that were used also. Two arrows, one marked with a line as the correct one and the other not marked. Or a black pebble, which was the, the one, the not correct one, and a white pebble, which was. Or 
a long stick and a small stick. The small stick would be the one that was chosen. Now, after Judas betrayed uh, Jesus and committed suicide, Peter went ahead and said in Acts 1, 21, Therefore, these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Ber uh, Barsabas, uh, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So, it was crucial to these 11 apostles that the number be 12, which Jesus had originally chosen to be complete again. They chose the candidate, how? By casting lots. Now, in our day, we have random selection of people to receive monies. And it's still done in our lotteries and lotto, both named after casting lots. So it appears the practice of casting lots, at least among believers, was a way to go ahead and hear God's guidance. But it was stopped after God gave us and sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. After the casting of lots by the 11 that we just read about, there is nowhere else in the New Testament where Christians are instructed to cast lots. The Word of God the Bible, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit is sufficient enough to know God's will and to make decisions. Jesus said in John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So, if we're not casting lots then can the Holy Spirit truly guide us? If you remember, in Acts 16, Paul wanted to go to Asia in order to preach, but the Spirit forbid him. In verse 6, it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Messiah, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So the Holy Spirit is also a restrainer. He kept Paul out of Asia, and he holds back the nefarious forces at work in this world today. So as long as the Holy Spirit that indwells in each and every one of us is here, evil will be kept at bay. That's one of the reasons why the Great Tribulation hasn't happened yet. We, the church Christians, haven't been raptured so that evil cannot prevail. Now, don't get me wrong. Evil continues to make strides within this world. Amen? Yeah. But because of us, because the fact that we are still here, the Holy Spirit inside of each of us, we restrain that evil. And until the day that we are removed, that we are raptured, that we are taken out of this world, tribulation and end times cannot truly begin. 
So anybody who tells you that, oh, we're going through the tribulation right now? No. Now, a little bit of a detour, but I wanted to delve into the casting of lots just a little bit deeper as we see it here in Scripture. So they cast lots for the children of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Let's see what they get. From the Jordan by Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through the mountains to Bethel. Then they went out from Bethel to Luis, passed along to the border of the Archelites at Ataroth, and went down westward to the boundary of the Japhthalites, as far as the boundary of lower Beth Haran to Gezer, and it ended at the sea. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. So a single lot was cast for the inheritance of both of these tribes, both of the the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and and Manasseh. And these two tribes together only received that one lot, which later would cause them to complain. We're going to see this next week in chapter 17, in verses 14 through 18. Now, the map that's displayed, the map that's about to be displayed It'll get up there probably like three pages ahead. Anyway, you're going to see that there's different areas, right? Here it is for Manasseh and Ephraim, okay? And the areas that they went ahead and would have received. But for now, let's, before we get into this any deeper, let's take a look at the two children of Joseph. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 48, verses 1 through 20. We're going to read through this. Genesis 48. 1 through 20. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, who you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So understand what here it is Israel is saying, right? Formerly Jacob, right? He's saying, he's like, hey, your sons, I'm going to call them mine. So in other words, now they're part of the 12 tribes of Israel and they will receive that inheritance, Continuing in verse 7, but as for me, when I came from Pardon, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Epathra, and I buried her there on the way to Epathra, that is Bethlehem. Verse 8, then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? So, First of all, when you see that, right, you got to kind of think, okay, were, was Joseph and his father estranged and he just never had the opportunity to see his sons or anything along those lines? Well, as we're about to read here, guess what? Jacob is losing his sight. 
in his old age. It wasn't that he was estranged from his grandsons, but as we get older, our eyes change. <laughs> we need these things that can call glasses, right? Well, they didn't have a good optometrist back then. So his sight diminishes, and that's what we see here with Israel. Verse 9, Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near. When Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Uh, Houston, we have a problem here. Who is the one that's supposed to be receiving the blessing? The firstborn. So tradition in the ancient world is that the first one, firstborn is the one who receives the blessing. The oldest receives the inheritance. The oldest receives the encouragement, the higher honor. But who's receiving it here? It's Ephraim, the younger, not Manasseh as it should have been. You see, a patriarch's blessing was important in biblical times as a practical matter of inheritance rights. In addition, some of the final blessings included prophetic statements that reveal God's supernatural power at work through the men of his choosing. This is important through the men of his choosing. You see, we're going to look at this a little bit deeper in just a moment, but let's finish up the passage. Verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who re has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a great people's and he shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. So after pronouncing the blessing upon Joseph, Jacob prepares to bless Joseph's sons by placing his right hand, the hand of priority, on Ephraim on his left and Manasseh on his left. Wait a minute, Dad, Joseph says. You're confused. Manasseh is the firstborn. Therefore, your right hand should be on his head. 
I know what I'm doing, Jacob says. Manasseh will be a great people, but Ephraim will be greater. And this is often the way of God. Remember, I said that God supernaturally will be at work through the men of his choosing. You see, it was Abel, not Cain, who was blessed, even though Cain was the firstborn. Jacob, not Esau, were twins, but Esau was older. Jacob, however, was the one who was blessed. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn. Isaac, however, was the child of promise. David was the youngest of all of Jesse's sons. Yet he, the man after God's own heart, was the one who was anointed by the king. This is a pattern that we see all throughout Scripture. Why? Well, first, I would say that our ways are not his ways. We see this in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, say the Lord, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than yours. So a couple of points. A, he is infinite. We are finite. B, he knows the end from the beginning while we'll see just a part, but he sees everything. You know, I've used this analogy before, but I think this is appropriate. So, for example, you go to the Rose Parade, right? And here comes a float. It's coming down Colorado Boulevard, right? And then it leaves. You get to see a snapshot of that parade based on wherever it is that you're sitting. But you see, God is hovering overhead in Sky 9, okay? And what can he see? He can see the beginning where all the, the, the uh, floats are being prepared. He can see as all the floats turn down Colorado Boulevard. He can see the end of the parade. He can see them where they're getting stored. You see, he's outside of space and time. D, examples through Scripture and experiences clearly illustrate that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And I forgot C. Shall we go back? <laughs> Letter C, he knows the whys. We grasp for wisdom. You know, so many times we ask that question of God, don't we? God, why did this happen? Why did I have to lose that loved one, that favorite pet of mine, the job? But you know, something about the wise, I think we're asking the wrong question. Because a lot of times we will never know the why this side of heaven. Think about Job, right? Remember in the book of Job? Here it was. He loses his family. He loses all of his livestock, his children, everything. He's sitting there in boils. He has the conversation with God. Does God ever tell him, hey, you know what, Satan and I, we had this little wager. I totally wagered on you, by the way. You're my man, right? Did he say that? He never tells Job about the conversation between him and Satan, does he? So he never finds out the why. I think a lot of times what's better is if we ask instead, God, what can I learn from this? How can I grow? You see, that is so important because we may never know the why, but we can always grow more spiritually. Amen?
darkness. And thank God for that. Because I, if I'm not seeking the Lord, asking for direction and guidance from the Holy Spirit, receiving that guidance, you know what? Oftentimes, I get it wrong. Now, secondly, I also suggest it shows you and me that God forgets about our firstborn and blesses our secondborn. Our kids? No, our lives. You see, that first life of ours, the one of sin, when we were living without Jesus, it's forgotten about. But the new life is the one that God focuses on and blesses. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I said to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. John 3, verses 4 through 7. Then we also see in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then in Romans 6, verse 6, starting in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, ours is the God of second born. Ours is the God of second chances. And for that, I am so blessed and thankful. Amen? Yes. So coming back to Joshua in verse 5. The border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus. The border of their inheritance on the east East side was that of Ataroth Adar, as far as upper Beth Haran. And the border went out towards the sea on the north side of Michmethath. Then the border went around eastward to Tanath Shiloh and passed by it on the east of Jananiah. Then it went down from Jananath to Ataroth and Narah, reached to Jericho, and came out at the Jordan. The border went out from Tapua westward to the brook Cana, and it ended at the sea. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim. According to their families, the separate city for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. So some of Ephraim's cities were actually part of Manasseh's inheritance. We're also going to see that next week in 17 verse 9. The reason for this is not clear, but it may have been based on the greater blessing that was extended to Ephraim by Jacob, as we just read in Genesis 48. 
Manasseh also inherited towns from other territories of two other tribes, Ischar and Asher. We'll see that also next week in 17 verse 11. So finishing up in verse 10. And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. Now, this also previews the, uh, the many statements about incomplete conquests. Let's read in Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and, and the Pesarites into their hands, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezak. Now, when I talked about in Joshua uh, chapter 13, I talked about mop-up operations that they needed to do. There were still Canaanites in the land. However, because they didn't complete the conquests, there was this continued need to go back to battle. Now, as we wrap things up here, we have to ask ourselves, who were the Canaanites? If you remember back, the Canaanites were descended from the grandson of Noah, Canaan. He was cursed because of his sin against Noah. Do you remember the story, right? Noah went out after the flood, and he raises crops, vineyards, and he gets drunk. He falls asleep, naked on his bed, in his tent, and what ends up happening? Ham goes in, the, the father of Canaan, right? sees it, mocks his father, and so then his other two sons go ahead. They walk backwards into the tent. They place a blanket over him. However, no one knows what happens, and he says, Cursed is Canaan and all of his descendants. That's the origination of the Canaanites. And we see this in Genesis 9, verses 20 through 25. Now, in Genesis 10, verses 15 through 19, we read of the 11 groups in the area of Syria and Palestine. And those are the descendants of Canaan. But at this point in our story, the Canaanites point to a specific group of people. We see them in first in Joshua 11:3 as one of the peoples that stood against the Israelites. Now, one of the many difficulties that people have with the book of Joshua and in the Old Testament is concerning the destruction of all the Canaanites. When the children of Israel entered into the promised land, they destroyed, or were supposed to destroy, the Canaanites as ordered by the Lord. The Bible tells us what happens when the Israelites conquered Jericho. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox, sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. We see that in Joshua 6.21. Those were the Canaanites. Why did God order the destruction of every woman, child, and animal? Is this because he was to show that he was cruel and warlike in his attitude? 
See, this is also the point where people a lot of times will argue, you know what? There's two gods of the Bible. There was the God of the Old Testament, which was a God of war, and the God of the New Testament, which is a God of love. See, but that's not the case. It's not the case at all. Now, first off, I believe that we have to understand the historical situation when dealing with the Canaanites. Now, while the loss of innocent life should never be tolerated, in regards to the Canaanites, the situation has to be understood with the background in mind. The nation Israel was chosen to be a witness for the world of the true and living God. The Israelites will live in the promised land, surrounded by heathen nations, and they continue to do so today. And, however, they could not be or were not allowed to be influenced by those other nations' religion. So God instructs his people that they are not to go ahead and take any elements of the false pagan religions. Do you think they listened? No. And that was the problem even leading up to today. The promised land that the Israelites were to settle was populated by the Canaanites who had corrupted and perverted God's truth. They had corrupted themselves to a place where they were beyond saving. Whoa, whoa, wait a second, Adam. What did you, I thought God gave us all free will. Didn't they have the opportunity to turn from their wicked ways and follow after the God of Israel? Yes, but they didn't. You see, remember, we look at it with our finite eyes. Remember, our ways are not his ways. Remember how I described the parade, right? Our Lord God being able to look from beginning to end, being outside of time, can see that these people were never going to change if they had been permitted to live. They would have infected Israel with their moral depravity. In the writings of Christopher J.H. Wright, he states, the degraded character of the Canaanite society and religion is more explicitly described in moral and social terms in Leviticus chapters 18 and 20 and Deuteronomy 9 and 12. This includes the sexual promiscuity and perversion, particularly associated with fertility cults, as well as the callousness of child sacrifice. This is reinforced in the historical text with additional notes about the social oppression and the violence. We see this in 1 Kings 14.21 as well as 2 Kings 16.17 and 21. Now, if we take all these texts seriously as part of God's own explanation for the events that unfold in the book of Joshua, we cannot avoid their implications. The conquest was not human genocide. It was divine judgment. Now, the second point, I kind of mentioned it, was that Israel was to be a witness. Now, Israel had to establish itself in the region as a witness to the one true God. All remnants of the pagan culture had to be destroyed. The failure was to totally eliminate the pagans in the promised land, and that would eventually lead to the downfall that we see in the book of Judges. Let me read you just real quick here as we're wrapping up. Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Then the angel of the Lord came to Gilgal at Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Did they? 
Yeah, we read that early in Joshua, right? Um, you shall tear down the altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be a thorn in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. God ordered the destruction of the Canaanites because of the corrupting influence that they were going to have with their false religious systems if they were allowed to, to survive. Unfortunately, as we just read, Israel disobeyed God, and they didn't utterly destroy all these pagan people. And their disobedience eventually led to their own captivity. Now, the third point is that the Canaanites were not innocent victims. Not only did they worship the false gods and have the child sacrifices, but the people who lived in Canaan were not ignorant of the God of Israel. Many times the impression is given that God ordered the Israelites just to go ahead and rush in and kill and destroy all these innocent people. But these people were neither innocent, as I described earlier, the pagan worship and child sacrifice, nor ignorant. They heard about the God of Israel, but they rejected him. Do you remember when the two spies were sent out into the promised land from Moses and what they were told by Rahab the prostitute? Who were those? Caleb and Joshua, right? And in Joshua 2.11, it starts off and it says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you have fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did they remain any more courage, neither did there remain any more courage in any because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. They had heard about the new or the, the true God, but they rejected him. Consequently, their entire society acted in a sinful way. Even Paul the Apostle wrote about this. In Romans 1, 21 through 25, it states, Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. Does that sound familiar? The inhabitants of Canaan were neither ignorant nor innocent victims of an angry God. They had been committing terrible sins, knowing full well about the true living God. Because they rejected him and his forgiveness, God dealt with them and judged them harshly. So the Israelites did not drive out the Canaanites. There were consequences. Are there things in life that maybe your life that you didn't finish? Did you ever have to write a turn paper and then turn it in late or maybe even not at all? What happened? Your grades suffered the consequences, didn't they? 
How about New Year's resolutions? We endeavor to work out or eat better. How many of us have already given up on those? And yet we still suffer the consequences of our actions. You see, with the things that we don't finish in our lives, there are consequences. The Israelites didn't drive out the Canaanites, and there were consequences. What areas in our lives where we have started something that we need to go ahead and return back to? Are there areas in, li- in our lives that we can be guided, not by casting lots, but by being led by the Holy Spirit? Let's not put it off another day. Let us return from our mistakes. The Israelites, let us learn from our mistakes, the mistakes of the Israelites, and learn from our passage here today. When God speaks, listen to God. Then do what he says. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I know when I look back on my own life, how many of the consequences that I suffered because I wasn't following you. So, Lord, I pray, if there is that thing that's missing in each and every one of our lives, maybe something that we started, maybe it was just reading through the Bible in one year, maybe it was something deeper in the relationship with you, a ministry that was placed upon our heart that we didn't act on. God, whatever that is in each and every one of our lives, I pray that we would just be led, that we would be encouraged by the Holy Spirit, in order to come through, in order to finish what you have started in our hearts. God, we need you so very much. I pray that you would be with us tonight. I pray that you would send that great encourager, the Holy Spirit, to be by our side, to watch over us, to guide us. And again, Lord, let us be attentive to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.